Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the World's Disappearing Forests. There are no precise data, but the estimate is that uh, something like 100,000 square kilometers of rainforest is felt, is cleared every year. This is about the size of Portugal. It's a little bigger than, it's 20% bigger than Austria. It's about half the size of the UK. 100,000 square kilometers of rainforest destroyed every year. I think it's directly analogous to if you took all the museums, all the libraries, all the art galleries on Earth, all the things that cultures seem to prize and destroyed them. And it's, but it's infinitely worse because they're infinitely more beautiful, they're infinitely more inspiring, they're infinitely more diverse than anything ever done by humans. What's in these forests that is just being destroyed? I have to say, within the last little over a year, I have a very different feeling about global environment than I had in my previous 14 years of professional involvement. And I'm just a little bit scared, a little bit scared that the problem is so big and so fast that society will not, with all its inertia, will not wake up fast enough and take the important steps. The world's forests are under assault, stripped for fuel, cleared for fields and pastures, and logged as though there were no tomorrow. In East Asia, whole countries have been logged out in a little more than a generation. Above the Brazilian Amazon in the summer of 88, the smoke of the settlers' fires was sometimes so thick that planes were prevented from landing and taking off. Satellite photographs showed some 7,000 separate fires burning in the forests below. The price so far has been displaced people, degraded lands and disrupted ecosystems. Floods, famines, droughts and deserts can all be traced back to deforestation. The price still to pay, if deforestation is not stemmed, will be even higher. The possible extinction of up to a quarter of the world's species in the next 70 years and continued global warming. Tonight on Ideas, we begin a special look at the social and ecological consequences of deforestation. Our main focus will be on tropical deforestation, but in our final program, we'll also examine the pollution-related declines in Europe's and North America's forests. This repeat series is written and presented by David Cayley. Deforestation is as old as civilization itself. The Minoan civilization of Crete was running out of wood for its bronze foundries and palaces by 1700 BC. In 4th century Athens, Plato lifted up his eyes to the ruined hills of Attica, where the rainfall, he said, just wasted off the bare earth. There were wood riots in Tudor England, and hardly a forest left standing in 18th century Connecticut. But always these essentially local deforestations occurred in the context of a world that still contained vast wildernesses and unexplored frontiers. Today, the last frontier is in sight, and country after country, from Haiti to Nepal, is discovering what it's lost only after it's gone. Forester Kenton Miller, who today works for the World Resources Institute in Washington, has seen the change in his professional life. Wherever I traveled in those early days throughout South America, Africa, Asia, up to Alaska and northern Canada, there was always a sense that there was plenty more to go. 
and that things were still growing while we were cutting. What one gets now is an impression. I've had the opportunity to go back to places in the upper Amazon where I had been doing college thesis work. That's a, a while back. And to see areas that we crossed by dugout uh, for days and days on end without a break, completely cleared down the mineral soil, the soil eroding bare down into the rivers, and the loss of forest, the net loss of forest, they may come back into something green, but it will not be a forest with value either to timber production or to any sense of representing the range of species that used to be there. Things are oversimplifying. The, the, the word impoverishment, getting poor, is now very, very real. And I think, I feel a sense of desperateness that the thing is really going the wrong direction. And we are, we are definitely setting up a stage for destruction, not simply losing a few things here and there, but the scale of change is out of control. Concern with this scale of change now focuses on the lands which lie between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, the tropics. It has its ironic side, coming as it does from countries like Canada, which have grown rich by exploiting their forests. But there is more to it than just self-righteousness. Tropical forests are different, different in the strategic role they play in the biosphere as a whole, and also different, says Brazilian agronomist José Lutzenberger, in the extraordinary abundance of life forms they contain. The tropical rainforest is the richest living system on the planet. And I'm referring not only to South America, but also to Africa, Asia, Indonesia, New Guinea, and so on. An incredible diversity of living beings has been able to evolve. When you look at a European forest, or here a North American forest, we have a few dozen species of trees. I don't know how many it is here in Canada. In Europe, it's very little. In the rainforest, botanists have told me that they have already described something like three to 4,000 species of trees, and there are, there are at least 10,000 more to be discovered and described. Now, when you go down to orchids, herbs, uh, ferns, and so on, and when you look at all the animal world, especially the invertebrates, insects, and so on, then it is millions of species that we don't even know yet. The reason for this striking difference in species diversity between tropical and temperate forests is pretty much what you'd expect, the weather. Adrian Forsyth is one of a handful of Canadian tropical ecologists and the author of Tropical Nature. What makes the tropics really so rich is all the different things that an organism can be in the tropics as opposed to, you know, the far north. It's just easier to be a vine, for example, in an, in an Amazon forest where you don't have freezing and thawing and you have as much temperature fluctuation within a single day and night as you do during the whole year. It's very 
easy to evolve a very specialized solution like say stretching your body out of uh, over a half a mile and becoming a liana whereas when you get to Ontario you know what happens if you have uh, long undefended plumbing it just gets blown to pieces by the, the spring and fall freezing and thawing so it's all the interesting ecological release that goes on there that allows for all kinds of different plant life forms that simply can't exist out of the tropics because of the physical nature of, of water and proteins that, you know, they can do certain things at certain temperature ranges and the tropics are optimal for those. And when you allow all these different kinds of plants to exist, then you allow all sorts of different animals to do different things. So you again, you can have animals that make their entire life in the treetops and you just don't have that in the temperate zone. And uh, because every plant then supports about 20 other species on average, for example, all different kinds of insects and mites and things that feed on the insects, uh, you get this concatenation effect or just uh, every time you you chunk a plant species into a community, you add all kinds of other organisms that can then depend on the plant and they depend on each other and so on. So it starts to snowball. Ecosystems are not only richer in the tropics, they're also more highly localized. Biologists call this phenomenon endemism, the occurrence of species in one place and nowhere else. It's hard for a lot of people in temperate zones to realize because if you know the trees in Ontario, for example, and you go to Nova Scotia hundreds and hundreds of miles away, you're doing fine. You see the same maples and oak trees and not much difference in the flora, but you cover that same amount of distance in the tropics and you've just passed over community after community of, of different trees. You just go a few miles and you're finding new species. Um, and so every time you lose a small patch of habitat in, in areas of the tropics, you're lo losing species. So you just have to clear a mountaintop, for example, and wham, you've lost a bunch of species that existed only on that mountaintop and, and nowhere else. Whereas if you take a, a nice patch of pine forest at Tamagami, um, it's the same pine forest in the sense that you're going to get hundreds of miles away. The limited range of many tropical species is one of the reasons for the high rate of extinctions we are now seeing. Another is the many mutualisms which exist in tropical forests. Organisms co-evolve in dependency on one another, and so they tend to disappear in groups. Kenton Miller. The damage that can be caused by felling some of the large trees on the smaller ones is, is subtle. For example, in the South American tropics we're finding work of John Turberg and others, that some trees are only pollinated by certain beetles, certain insects, and they live in the crown of the trees only. And if we fell the representatives of that species for so many square miles, we can also destroy the pollinators of that tree. So that tree may never regenerate again, at least not in that area. You fell those big trees with the crowns that are enormous, crowns that may cover a quarter acre, all the branches going out. And you take down a tree like that, which pulls a lot with it, the vines that connect it to the ground and to other trees, the plants and animals that live up in that crown come down with it. They can only live, in many cases, up there. So they fall to the ground. They can't simply just, so to speak, walk away 
and find another place. And they're only found maybe in that one tree species, and there's not another tree of that species for another 10 or 15 acres in distance. They evolved with those trees over millions of years, and there's a great partnership going on up in those tree crowns. That's a much more complicated situation than we had in northern temperate zone. The current rate of species loss, according to biologist E.O. Wilson, exceeds anything found in the last 65 million years. If the trend continues, we may see the loss of up to one quarter of the world's species within the lifetime of today's children. Human beings, in other words, are now altering the biosphere in ways paralleled only by the great geological and cosmic upheavals of the distant past. This certainly raises a harrowing philosophical question about the right of one species to wantonly destroy so many others, but it also raises very practical economic questions. Tropical forests, historically, have been the source of many invaluable agricultural and medicinal plants, from tomatoes and potatoes to quinine and cortisone. Future discoveries depend on there being a forest to find them in. Dr. Richard Evans Schultes is an ethnobotanist, a student of how indigenous peoples use their native flora, and the retired director of the Harvard Botanical Museum. In 1941, he went to the Colombian Amazon to study the arrow poison curare, a tree extract which has found a very different use in modern medicine. Curare, or extracts from it, are used today as muscle relaxants in hospitals around the world as a muscle relaxant before surgery, for example, meaning that the surgeon has to cut or move organs much less drastically than he used to have to do. The native uses this to kill, and we're using it to save life, lives. Another good example is the fish poison. Certain plants, the barks, are pounded and used to stupefy fish among primitive peoples. The fish come up to the surface to try to get more oxygen because their gills are affected, and the native is waiting in the canoe and grabs them and puts them in the basket. Fish poisons. We don't want to fish with poisons in Europe, the United States, Canada, and other heavily populated areas. But when we analyzed one of these plants, we found it had a ketone called rotenone. And rotenone is our cheapest and best biodegradable insecticide, which can be spread as a dust from airplanes over thousands of acres of monocultures like maize or um, cotton or soybean, and in two days it's degraded. It's not like, for example, DDT, which is not degraded and goes through animals and into plants and eventually into our foods. So here's one thing that natives use for, to fish with, and we use it as an, a good insecticide. Richard Schultes lived with the Indians of the Colombian Amazon for 14 years. During that time, he noted 1,700 plants that were in some kind of use by the people, 
a figure equal to virtually the total flora of his native New England. This huge number includes hallucinogenic plants, plants for which contraceptive properties are claimed, and a wide variety of medicines. Only a handful have ever been investigated in the laboratory. He made these findings in one small corner of the Amazon forest. How many other potentially beneficial species remain undiscovered by Western science is only a guess. Dr. Schulte's fear now is that many of them may be lost before they are ever studied. If they are lost, as is happening in parts of the Amazon, especially in Brazil, where millions of acres annually are being flattened, every stick, we may be losing something that has a, a new wonder drug in it, let alone possible wild relatives of food plants that may be useful in hybridizing to get disease resistance or to make the cultivated plant more adaptable to drier or wetter climates or to different soils or for higher yield. There are many reasons for this hybridization of relatives of the cultivated species to introduce from their germplasm characteristics which we want in the cultivated type. Many plants are disappearing before they're even named and let alone studied chemically or agronomically or botanically. Someone has written a, a very good book called Extinction is Forever. And that is true. Here in the rainforest, north of Manaus, Brazil, Canadian biologist Barbara Zimmerman studies frogs and snakes. She's part of a study team called the Minimum Critical Size of Ecosystems Project, which is trying to find out what actually happens to the species which live there when continuous rainforest is cut up into fragments by an advancing agricultural frontier. Her first job was to survey frog species. She found 45, tracking them at night and recording their mating songs on her Ewer tape recorder. Carting around the, uh, the Ewer was <laughs> the main, main curse on my existence for a long time. This area we work in is quite hilly. There's a lot of short, steep hills. And especially in the rainy season, they get slick. The mud just gets slick. It's like soap. So I made a lot of memories of struggling up these and down these hills with this weight on my back. And then uh, trying to find a lot... Many of these frogs, most of them, are not easy to find. I mean, there's a lot of other things besides biologists that wanted to find them, and they've, they've evolved ways to be inconspicuous or not be found by pretty well everything in the Amazon eats frogs, you know, from bats to spiders to birds, everything. So there's species that live high up in the trees. There was, there's one that doesn't really descends below 100 feet, However, I was fortunate to be living in a camp with 
the botany crew, which climbs trees for a living, I just had to persuade one of them to climb a tree in the, uh, in the middle of the night and put his hand down this dark hole and try and catch this frog. We could, we could hear the frog. It was a very conspicuous frog, a loud call, but couldn't get it. So I, I eventually persuaded one of these guys to, to do this for me. We found the frog, and then it was easy from then on. We knew what was making the noise. And, and there's other ones that, you know, will be in the middle of of some swamp with, with all this, these thorny plants and, and uh, you know, with spikes on them the size of daggers, and you've got to go in there and try and pull this frog out. So it wasn't easy the first couple of years trying to find all the frogs and figure out which ones were making what calls. The Minimum Critical Size of Ecosystems Project is the brainchild of tropical ecologist Tom Lovejoy, now the Assistant Secretary for External Affairs at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. It began with a question which was vexing conservation biology. How big does an ecosystem have to be to preserve all its species? What's its minimum critical size? When Lovejoy began the project more than 10 years ago, there was already a theory which addressed the question, called the Theory of Island Biogeography, published by Robert MacArthur and E.O. Wilson in 1967. The theory argued that island ecosystems, whether they are literal islands or just isolated fragments of mainland, will tend to have fewer species and less complex relationships between species than comparable areas of continuous wilderness. What was missing was concrete evidence. The problem of island biogeography as a theoretical science had already come into existence. And some people tried to apply that to the design of nature reserves and it immediately erupted into a huge scientific contretemps as to whether the theory applied or not. Uh, in fact, the theory is neutral. You've know, you got to have is data before you can say whether a big reserve will hold more species than a series of small ones of the same total area. Uh, and you know, here are all these people around the world and organizations trying to set up parks and save things, and they could not get a clear answer from science. And uh, it used to be devil me, because I worked for the World Wildlife Fund, and I was making recommendations about national park projects and stuff. And then one day, it occurred to me that there would be an opportunity, perhaps in Brazil, where uh, in the Amazon there was a rule that says that 50% of any development project had to remain in forest, uh, and that maybe you could persuade the people involved and the authorities involved to arrange the 50% so you'd have a giant experiment and have a series of reserves of different sizes and replicates in given size classes, which you could study while they were part of the continuous forest, and then follow the changes that are triggered uh, after they are isolated. Lovejoy's research team had to pretty well begin from the beginning. Tropical ecology is a scientific frontier, and little was known of the region of the Amazon they proposed to study. Barbara Zimmerman. The central Amazon of Brazil is somewhat like our Northwest Territories, as far as Brazil is concerned. It's really out of the mainstream of the rest of the country. You know, it's the backwoods. The major cultural economic, scientific action goes on in the south of Brazil, like in the south of Canada. You know, and there's a lot of good biologists and a lot of good scientists in Brazil, but the concentration has been in the south. The, the, the Amazon 
area has basically been untouched, except for surveys, collecting trips. There's been a certain amount of that done, but even collecting trips in the Amazon, where you go presumably to find out what species are there, whether it be a two, three-week, two-month trip, but for most groups, even birds and mammals, which which are the most conspicuous and the easiest to survey, it takes years even of sitting in one place. There's so many rare species, whether they're actually rare or rare because they're hard for humans to find, that it, you can't get it all in two weeks or two months. You know, you've got to be there for a long time. So I would say that as far as the central Amazon goes, yes, this is the first concentrated, intensive effort at sitting at one place year after year after year and trying to get everything at that place. The minimum critical size of ecosystems project is now 10 years old, and much of the survey work in the continuous forest, like Barbara Zimmerman's frog study, is already done. Work in the fragments has lagged behind, ironically because the ranchers haven't cut as fast as the researchers would have liked. The largest fragment isolated so far is still only 100 hectares, about 200 acres, with the 1,000 hectare fragments still to go. But some basic points are already clear. The preliminary conclusions aren't too surprising. One hectare areas are pretty much useless for conserving anything. Many of them just blow down. Ten hectare areas are not going to be much better. Specifically, uh, some of the information is starting to come out with the birds and the small mammals. The birds, uh, initially, when when an area is cut, crowd into the fragments. So you get this crowding effect as the the birds from the cutover areas are fleeing into the these islands, but very quickly that drops off. Within a couple of years, the community seems to equilibrate, but at a lower level. It uh, equilibrates at a lower species diversity. You've got you've got species that drop out. In fact, um, Rob Beergard, who is responsible for the bird project, says that you he, you can give him a list of birds, and he'll tell you what sized area that list is from. Yeah, you know, he'll say this is a list from a one hectare. It's a list from a hundred hectare. So it's predictable. The research so far confirms the theory. Forest fragments tend to simplify and lose species. Extrapolating from this research, Tom Lovejoy now estimates that the minimum critical size for an Amazonian nature reserve is in the range of two to 300,000 hectares. This is not outsized for a park. One protected sector of the Colombian Amazon is over four million hectares, but at the current rate of deforestation in Brazil, where more than four million hectares were burned in 1987 alone, there will soon be few such areas outside of parks. Forces driving deforestation are complex and vary from region to region. Certainly the leading cause worldwide is the search of landless and unemployed people for more food-producing lands. In the Americas, ranching has been a major cause. In parts of Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean, a critical fuel wood shortage, the poor man's energy crisis, has put intolerable pressure on forests. In Southeast Asia, logging has played a prominent role. Often logging and agricultural colonization work in tandem, 
with the loggers opening up the forest and building roads, and the settlers following up to finish the job. So the pressures on tropical forests are intense, but they are not necessarily inevitable. The landless, for example, are not necessarily landless because there's no land, but because land is monopolized. Brazil is a startling case in point. In Brazil today, less than 1% of the farms account for nearly half the land under cultivation, and government policies have fostered this concentration by favoring large monocultures of export crops, like soybeans, over domestic food production. There is no land shortage. Land redistribution and new agricultural policies could have accommodated all of Brazil's farmers on productive soils. But instead, the military government, which seized power in 1964, chose to divert land pressure into its vast northern forest hinterland by launching what the generals called Operation Amazonia, a package of policies designed to stimulate agricultural and industrial development in the Amazon region. It initiated what will probably be remembered as one of history's greatest ecological follies, the attempt to establish a productive agriculture on lands which one ecologist describes as a desert with trees. José Lutzenberger. The soils under the rainforest are the poorest soils in the world. It is very misleading when you look at those fantastic forests. Even some scientists like Humboldt in the last century, when they saw that uh, luscious forest, they thought that it must be standing on one of the most fertile soils in the world. It's just the opposite. The rainforest survives uh, because it has somehow learned, if we can apply that word, that word, to recycle all its nutrients as fast as possible. When you look at a forest in a temperate climate like here in Canada, you have a situation where about 80 or 90, perhaps 95 percent of the nutrients of that ecosystem is in the soil. And between 2 and 5 percent is in circulation in the biomass. Now the rainforest, the tropical rainforest, is the opposite. More than 95, perhaps 98, in some cases 99 percent of the nutrients are in the biomass. And there's almost nothing in the soil. The dry leaf that rains down from the canopy of the trees, in a few days, at most in two weeks, it is reabsorbed. The roots come out of the soil. There's hardly any bacteria in the soil. Uh, the roots of the, the hair roots of the trees come out of the soil, go into the dead leaves, and uh, in symbiosis with certain fungi, the nutrients are taken out directly from that leaf without going into the soil and back up into the canopy. So when you cut down that forest, burn it, and then the heavy downpours, enormous rainfall of up to 5,000 millimeters a year in some places, and constantly high temperatures, year-round temperatures above 25 degrees or so, when you cut that forest down, nothing is left. Of course, you don't get a a typical desert with the sand dunes, but what you get is poor, unproductive scrub. Poor, unproductive scrub is precisely what now exists on large tracts of the Brazilian Amazon. Between 1960 and 1980, the population of Brazil's northern states more than doubled as new settlers flooded into the region along an ambitious network of new roads. They found that once the trees were gone, and the land exposed to baking sun and torrential rains, 
the soil soon degraded to the consistency of ground-up glass. Brush invaded the pastures, pests afflicted the agricultural plots, and the nutrients, which the forest had husbanded for millennia, leached away. So did the settlers. In the Brazilian state of Rondonia, attrition is 82%. Most get crops for only two or three years. Pastures last not more than 10, and up to three acres are required to sustain one cow. This forces the deforestation front inexorably forward as ranchers expand their holdings and settlers who have failed in one place go on to clear another. Behind the front lies an ever-growing expanse of abandoned and degraded lands. Susanna Hecht is a Brazilian specialist at the University of California in Los Angeles. According to the INPE, which is the Brazilian Space Institute, we're looking at areas about 50% of the areas that have been cleared are now abandoned or in some form of degradation. So you're looking at a fairly grisly uh, garden. There's currently, as you know, very great uh, battles raging over how much of the Amazon has been deforested. But let's take 15 to 20 million hectares as your sort of baseline data. Then you're looking at 10 million hectares in the last 20 years that have been reduced to rubble. Cattle and conventional agriculture have proved to be completely inappropriate land uses in the Amazon region, and without the generous subsidies the government provided, uneconomic as well. The Brazilian government, under considerable international pressure, recently announced an end to its subsidies. But by itself, says Susanna Hecht, this will make little difference there are now simply too many other forces driving deforestation. One thing that is certain is that the Brazilians will continue putting in development there and that land values on the basis of continued governmental investment are likely to keep rising. Second, there's been an explosion in road development. So every time you put in a road, you increase the value of lands nearby by several hundred percent. Third, there's not many alternative investment areas in Brazil. The manufacturing economy is faltering. If you have land uh, elsewhere, you're often being squeezed out as a function of consolidation of farms in southern Brazil. And uh, land still is relatively cheap in the Amazon. And of course, you always sort of think that the problems of soil were, you know, because other people were, were not quite as on the ball as you might be, so perhaps those could be overcome. The other things are that uh, you do have an inflation rate now of over a thousand percent. So if you have any money, where are you going to put it? You need to put it in something that can accompany inflation, and that certainly is land, uh, far better than almost any other investment. So there are lots of reasons. The speculative gains to land are important. The other thing is that there is a major gold run, and a lot of people have been able to capitalize themselves by the fact that sooner or later somebody discovered gold on their land. So this gold rush is important. The other thing is that um, just clearing it increases its value by more than 30% compared with forested land. So if you just clear your land, you can then turn it over at a far greater price. You know, a lot of this land has been acquired illegally or without formal title. So essentially you get a free good and you can turn it over into a marketed good. Um, this represents a big, you know, one-time capital gain. And, and then finally, there is timber that can be marketed. So there's been a lot of things around it 
that have made livestock very, very attractive, not for producing beef, but for producing money, you know, as a vehicle for capturing other kinds of resources. Brazil is not the only country converting its jungles to pastures. From Mexico to Argentina, the cow has been the scourge of the forests. Ecologist Adrian Forsyth has watched the process in Costa Rica, where it was orchestrated by both the government and the international development banks. Ironically, the Costa Rican government has also made the strongest commitment to conservation of any tropical government. But its agricultural policies have still resulted in its being deforested virtually to the boundaries of its ambitious national park system. The government decides that it wants to build the beef industry, so it gives out all kinds of incentives to create beef pastures, such as low-interest loans that you don't have to begin paying back for five years. That means essentially you have free money for five years as long as you keep a beef herd. And so you can get a loan to buy more cattle, sell them off to the export market, uh, get another loan, buy more cattle, and, you, and the more cattle you sell and the more loans you get, the more free money you've got without interest. And so the government lending practices, which are supported by big, say, the Inter-American Development Bank or World Bank or whatever, just gives entrepreneurs the incentive to go out and farm a huge amount of cattle. The cattle themselves aren't really worth much at all, you know, they're perhaps cheap beef for the importer, but the, the person who's actually doing the deforestation is making money out of this loan structure where you essentially are getting free, no-interest money, and that's, that's always a strong incentive to get involved with anything. And, and uh, you know, if they'd given those kinds of loans for something else, say agricultural diversification to get out of cattle and get into sort of a small area high yield crop like asparagus or tropical fruit or whatever you would had land use intensification where you you know instead of creating large extensive areas of pasture you focus on high quality product in a small area you would have had much less deforestation so it's really these government incentives which are based on this ignorance about land use that uh, have created a lot of this stuff. Costa Rica and the Brazilian Amazon are very different places. For one thing, Costa Rica's young volcanic soils give the country far greater agricultural possibilities than the senile clays of the Amazon basin will ever allow. But in both places, the forests have gone at a terrible discount in relation to both their ecological and their long-term economic value. The tragedy of this is expressed in an affecting image from one of Englishman Adrian Cowell's films about the Brazilian Amazon. It shows a felled Brazil nut tree lying in a patch of scrubby corn. The standing tree might have produced 3,000 pounds of nuts, the corn only a meager harvest for a couple of years. Surveying Costa Rica's Pacific Slope from the Monteverde Cloud Forest where he does research, Adrian Forsyth sees the same kind of waste. In Monteverde, for example, you look for miles and miles and miles over these pastures, uh, and they're brown and burnt out for half the year by the dry season winds, and you see about 10 cows in this 100 square mile. You know, the carrying capacity in the dry season is so low. And you look at the trees that they burnt, and there's at least... 30 or 40 trees, uh, species down there, uh, several per hectare that uh, are worth far more than mahogany is, for example. And they, it wasn't that they were logged and made into furniture for export to 
developed countries or anything like that. They were just chopped and burnt. And uh, I know I've met campesinos who told me, you know, I can remember cutting down pachote trees, the most valuable lumber trees in all of Costa Rica, just to get a, a fistful of honey out of a bee nest. You know, it was a complete and utter waste of the of the resource because no one could ever conceive that they would run out of trees. And so, in this area that's supporting a hundred cows, you can you see literally the the skeletons and burnt out remains of billions or at least millions of dollars of board feet of lumber. If these guys had just cut this stuff and warehoused it, they'd all be rich men today. But it, that's the whole thing. It's it's not making people rich. It's making them poor. You know, um, it's it's the true tragedy is just this complete throwing away of a valuable resource. Throughout history, rainforests have advanced and retreated with the rise and fall of civilizations. Today, civilization scours the entire planet, and the rainforests only retreat. We are witnessing the last assault, and according to tropical ecologist Dan Jansen of the University of Pennsylvania, it's different in kind from anything that has ever happened before. Many big tropical areas have been under heavy human agricultural impact for millennia. Today we're losing the species from those areas. For thousands of years we did not. What's the difference? The difference is that for thousands of years we cleared and damaged and trashed in a mosaic pattern. And the species kept moving back and forth between the spots that were relatively less damaged. That's what shifting agriculture is. Today we come in and we clear cut in a total sense. There is no historical analog to 100,000 square kilometers of cattle pasture in Brazil. All of the Yucatan Peninsula was agricultural land 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 years ago. All of it. Today you fly over it and it's an unbroken wilderness. Except if you use satellite photographs, you can see the dikes and canals underneath the trees. We have big areas all over the tropics that at one time sustained enormous populations and were very thoroughly cleared, but have now regenerated back to forest. The difference is we let them regenerate back to forest. Today, with no prospect of regeneration, the world faces the possibility that there will soon be no rainforests outside of protected parks and reserves. This is bound to have ramifications which go far beyond the tropics. It will certainly result in mass extinctions, as we noted earlier, and it may also have implications for the world's climate. Jose Lutzenberger. Tropical rainforests are not, as some people like to say, the lung of the planet, which actually is a wrong picture because lungs don't produce oxygen, they consume oxygen. The rainforests are a fantastic and incredible climate machine. They are, so to say, the air conditioner of the planet, straddling the equator with their fantastic evapotranspiration, they are a heat sink and they cool the atmosphere of the planet and they affect both hemispheres. The rainforest has an evapotranspiration of about 75%. 
That means that about 75% of the rain that goes down on the forest is put back into the atmosphere. Some 20% of the rainwater that hits the trees never hits the ground. It, 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 wetens, it wets the leaves and is re-evaporated back into the atmosphere. The se of, of the 75% that reach the ground, only about 25% end up in the streams and rivers and go to the ocean. And even on their way to the ocean, part of it is re-evaporated into the atmosphere. And the other 50% are taken up by the plant and put into the atmosphere by transpiration. That's why we say evapotranspiration, evaporation and transpiration. So the rainforest makes its own climate. José Lutzenberger's theory has a frightening corollary. Reducing the forested area beyond a certain critical but unknown point could lead to irreversible drying. This would heat the earth at the equator with unpredictable consequences for the planet as a whole. Adrian Forsyth. When you eliminate that vegetation, of course, you just you create this arid zone. You can just see it over big Amazonian cities. It'll be rain, big cumulus clouds stacked up all over the forest. And as soon as you get to the, the city, the sky is absolutely clear. And the ground, of course, is very hot because there's no vegetative cover and it gets baked. And so if you do that over a, an area the size of almost the continental United States, you essentially turn off this big equatorial evaporative system, which is undoubtedly going to change all the rainfall patterns north and south of that system. In addition to its uncertain influence on the climate, tropical deforestation plays a role in the greenhouse effect. The buildup of so-called greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, leading to a gradual rise in global mean temperature. Forests are what scientists call a carbon sink, they take carbon out of the atmosphere when they grow. When they are burned, as forests cleared for agriculture usually are, this carbon is released. Burning of tropical forests now contributes between 20 and 40 percent of the carbon pumped into the atmosphere annually. It could, in other words, make a critical difference in a problem which Tom Lovejoy fears could become a runaway. I think most people would agree the Earth on the average, is already half a degree centigrade warmer. It doesn't sound like very much. But then remember the difference between a glacial period, when uh, most of Canada was under ice, and an interglacial was only five degrees centigrade. So what we're talking about is already a change equal to one-tenth of what made such a massive change in the planetary ecology except it's in the other direction. On top of that, the Earth doesn't warm up instantly when more carbon dioxide is put up in the atmosphere. It's an accumulation. So we're already committed to some more warming. Then on top of that, you have to realize that the warming will be uneven, that the farther you go towards the poles, the greater the warming will be which may seem great in the Yukon in the middle of January, but what it will do is uh, massively alter the ecology. The snow line, as it were, will change. As soon as you no longer have snow up there, you will get further warming because the white snow won't be there reflecting energy back. And there's a real possibility of a runaway effect. Adrian Forsyth. 
the thing that's emerging about the the greenhouse effect is that it's a positive feedback system so that you know a small addition may encourage further additions sort of thing so that twenty uh, percent say contributed by tropical deforestation may only sound like one-fifth of the problem compared to say fossil fuels but that twenty percent may real, really be crucial if it kicks off another change for example that that twenty percent rise in temperature then causes all the peat uh, moss in in the boreal forest of Canada to oxidize and it was just at that stable point and the 20% kicks you over that stable point. You release all the carbon from the northern bogs and tundra, and you know you're into another um, another problem where it's adding methane to the atmosphere, and so it goes on and on. And people believe that's how you know the ice ages work is this this incredible positive feedback cycle where things go way past equilibrium and take a long, long uh, perturbation before they start to to reverse and why they reverse is anyone's guess but I think tropical forests are, are posed to play a, a major effect in that either negatively by being burnt and being turned into atmospheric carbon or by being reforested and turned in, into this incredible sink which will slow down the process. Fossil fuel burning is still the major cause of global warming but burning of tropical forests may be a fairly close second. According to Tom Lovejoy's figures Approximately 5 billion tons of carbon are put into the atmosphere annually. 2 billion are removed by natural processes, absorbed by the oceans or growing plants. That leaves 3 billion. Last year, in Brazil alone, burning of forests put 600 million tons of carbon into the atmosphere, which is 20% of 3 billion. If the global rate was double that, which seems a reasonable assumption, then deforestation may be contributing as much as 40% of net atmospheric carbon increase. It follows, for Dr. Lovejoy, that a combination of reforestation and ending deforestation could make quite a difference. If one was able to reforest uh, in various places around the world, north and south, I mean, I think everybody, every country has to participate, at least every country that can grow trees, you could reforest on the order of one to two million square kilometers. Uh, you could remove about a billion tons of carbon from the air. So there's a potential there playing with reforestation and controlling deforestation to bring the imbalance in the equation down from three billion tons per year to maybe one and a half billion tons a year and that can leave energy conservation, energy efficiency with the reasonable number to work on and to try to bring it down to zero. But, and here's the big but, that only works for like 30 years because when forests begin to mature, they cease to be a major uptaker or sink in the, the scientist term, uh, sink for carbon. So, you have to think about what to do after that. I think the way to look at it is that playing with energy conservation efficiency and management of forests, we can buy 30 years to develop a new energy scenario for society. This implies management on an unprecedented scale. Without any question, I mean, we have to start managing the planet as a whole, uh, which is uh, not an easy leap for a bunch of sovereign nations. 
I mean, this is not going to be solved on a business-as-usual basis. That's what it comes down to. You know, I've spent my entire life being very cool and balanced and constructive and everything, but I would be irresponsible if I did not say, I think we have less than 10 years to get it together. I think we need to approach this with the same sense of urgency and the same psychology as if we were on a, on a war footing. And the only difference here is that we're at war with our way of life and with ourselves. You've been listening to the first program in our five-part repeat series on the world's forests. The series was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations, Lorne Tulk. Production assistants, Faye McPherson and Gail Brownell. Producer, Jill Eisen. Special thanks to Phil Hazelton. The series continues next Friday with a look at the impact of logging on traditional forest dwellers like the Penan of North Borneo. Transcripts of this five-part series are available. Send a check or money order for $7 to CBC Enterprises, Forests, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. We also have a reading list, and that's free. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And join me Monday evening for the concluding program in our series, the Ideas of Northrop Fry. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>